I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, in the past five years, the rise in the murder rate in Oakland has been shocking and heartbreaking. Here are the numbers from the years 2017 to 2021. We went from 69 murders to 70 to 78 to 102 and then 124 last year. But as my guest, Chronicle writer and editor Rahim Hosseini explains, that trend wasn't unprecedented. From 2006 to 2012, Oakland hit triple-digit homicides in six out of seven years before driving the rate back down. How did they do it, and what can we learn from the past? Rahim, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Damien? Good, Rahim. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about the homicide rate, not just in Oakland, but around the country, especially in big cities. What drove you to look at this story and dig deeper into what's going on in Oakland? Well, it was another story that um, I and a, a team of journalists at The Chronicle uh, worked on for several weeks at the end of 2021. And it was a wrenching story about the people who were lost to homicide, criminal homicide specifically, in the city of Oakland last year. And in telling the stories of five of the 124 people who were murdered in Oakland last year, one of the statistics we came across but didn't really get a chance to delve too deeply into was the fact that 10 years ago, Oakland had very similar, almost mirror image homicide statistics for two years, and then they just started going down. And so the question was, what happened then, and could it happen again today? So it gives you a lot of hope. What happened? Well, I mean, we I went back and talked to city officials, residents, and even watched um, old city council meetings from a decade ago to try to find that out. And the unifying answer was that it was the city's Operation Ceasefire project. And specifically the fact that the city launched Operation Ceasefire with full support from the city, its police department, and in full partnership with community uh, leaders and a host of of both city and community-led services on the front lines. And what is Ceasefire? So Ceasefire is a violence reduction uh, strategy that was born out of Boston more than two decades ago. And it was developed by a... um, a criminologist named David Kennedy, who uh, is a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and um, leads a, uh, a national organization that has since taken this strategy across the country. But essentially, it operates under the uh, understanding that most violence is driven by a very small percentage of people in any community. And that the violence is driven by people in under-resourced and often over-policed neighborhoods and is group or gang-affiliated and often over personal issues. And sometimes issues that have been running for decades, Um, uh, personal disputes or conflicts between groups that have been running for decades. All right. So as you write, these ceasefire sessions, they revolve around something called a call-in. What's a call-in? So a call-in is one of the tools the Ceasefire Project uses. It's a group meeting between, on one side, you have members of law enforcement, uh, community leaders, 
people who have been directly impacted by violence. And then on the other side, up to usually around 20 people who have been deemed at high risk of either perpetrating a violent crime or being the victim of a violent crime. And these meetings are supposed to happen in these sort of neutral uh, settings, and they involve the law enforcement, the community members, the people impacted by violence, delivering a message that is an anti-violence message that is also doubles as an offer of real genuine help to the people deemed at risk of committing or, or being the victim of violence, and a message that says, we value your lives. We want you not just to put the guns down for our sake, but for your own sake. And it comes with a follow-up message, which is, if the violence does not stop, there will be a very hyper-focused law enforcement response to the groups that are still perpetrating it. Here's a little bit of what Mayor Libby Schaff told you, Rahim, in your conversation about ceasefire. She said that if people are offered services but continue to commit violent crime, there will be consequences. You've been warned in a respectful manner, not just from law enforcement, but by community leaders who love you. You've been offered support. If after that you don't choose to put down your gun and stop the bleeding, then there will be consequences. Raheem, before we go on, I mean, this is a big sea change in, in law enforcement. You and I have covered it where police many years ago were doing a lot of saturation paroles, a lot of stops in, in some places, a lot of stop and frisk tactics. And in some ways, people said, no, you need to focus on what's actually, you need to focus on solving the crimes for one. And people who are most likely to commit crime or be the victims of crime and stop stopping everyone. Has ceasefire sort of come out of that? Yeah. Um, and in speaking to the the person who developed the strategy, David Kennedy, he's, he himself and other outside analyses of the Oakland ceasefire project and what it was able to accomplish, they all say that saturation doesn't work. It doesn't bring the violence down and it just creates more distrust in these communities with police. And so that their appropriate response is more intelligence, like really understanding what is driving the violence and not just knowing the story of the shooter and of the victim, but of the people around them and how violence can spawn or spark more violence and become this sort of retaliatory cycle um, in these communities. And understanding that and making sure that is part of a really focused law enforcement response. Well, if we're looking back at this success, I mean, tell me about the launch of Ceasefire. Was it smooth? Did it originally work? Did it have support in Oakland? Yeah, well, when I look back at 2012 and and the launch of Ceasefire that happened in the first month of 2013, it was actually a relaunch because the city had tried implementing ceasefire before in 2006 and 2009, but in a really piecemeal fashion and in a way that the consensus is that it ultimately, it was just a big failure. And so what was really interesting about going back a decade ago to see what the conversation was was like around policing was to see how much the community, religious leaders, community leaders, residents were the ones driving 
this message that the city needed to do ceasefire for real, that it needed to come out of City Hall, have a full buy-in from the, the city, the police department, its Health and Human Services Agency. It needed partner real partnerships with um, an array of services, both out of the city level and at the community level. And it needed real both financial and moral support behind it. So as uh, the Reverend Demita Davis Howard told me, and uh, she back in 2012, she was one of hundreds of religious leaders, pastors who was pushing the city to implement ceasefire. As she recalled, it finally happened when a coalition of religious leaders and advocates basically braced city officials, uh, the relatively new mayor, the relatively new police chief at the time in the fall of 2012 and said, we want this to happen. And uh, the city agreed to it. And in early 2013, the program launched. All right, let's take a quick break. More with Raheem Hosseini on Fifth and Mission right after this. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa. You were just hearing Ken Chambers, the founder of the Interfaith Council of Alameda County. He was an early supporter of that ceasefire program we're talking about. Uh, I'm here with, again, Raheem Hosseini. Raheem, what was ultimately re- the reception of ceasefire as homicides went down? Why do people think it worked? Did it work? Well, yeah. I mean, the city conducted outside analyses to answer that question. The Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence did its own analyses in the same way that Boston became a national story for bringing down its violence through the ceasefire program more than two decades ago. Oakland saw that story more recently. So it it was getting that positive national attention. And so a lot of people wanted to study what was happening here and whether ceasefire was actually working. And all the analyses said Yeah, it was. They controlled for other factors. They looked at those who participated in the program versus those who were outside of it. And again and again, they found measurable statistical ways of showing why the violence was dropping. And just to make that, you know, crystal clear, homicides came down. Uh, The number of shootings came down, specifically gang-related or group-involved shootings came down. So there were a number of metrics they looked at. And again and again, they were crediting or attributing the ceasefire project. I know they wanted to be sure there weren't other factors involved. I mean, as we've said, murder is really difficult to analyze. How do they know that it wasn't other factors besides the the efforts in Oakland? Why do, how do they know it wasn't societal factors? How do they know it wasn't gentrification, as some people say? Yeah, I asked that question of uh, Reverend uh, Demita Davis Howard, who, again, was a pastor back in the day calling for the program and uh, since August of 2020 is now its director. And I, I was curious, like, 
okay, we had we were the city was still feeling the ramifications of the Great Recession, right? These waves of foreclosure, entrenched poverty in in hard hit communities, the retraction of government and social services. And, you know, could it have been that the effects of the Great Recession were tapering off? Or could it be that the effects were displacing people and uh, crime was going down as as some sort of you know, odd symptom or, or uh, tangential effect of that. And Davis Howard and the mayor, in their views, say, no, like they looked at those factors. And, and not just that, but they, in other cities where the effects were different, where other cities where crime would fluctuate or go back up and, and maybe be attributed to some of these big social factors, that wasn't the story in Oakland. Like Oakland was able to avoid a mid-decade bump in violent crime that afflicted a number of cities across the United States. And again, they credited their their ceasefire project. And here's what Mayor Schaff said about measuring the impact of ceasefire. She said that crime did not go down because people were displaced out of the city. They actually concluded that the same people were in the city who had been committing violent crime before, but they themselves really were our heroes. They were the ones who made the choice to put down their guns and to stop the violence. So Raheem, let's bring it up to today. I mean, people want answers now for the rise in homicides in Oakland. By the way, I was looking back as we were preparing for this podcast, I was looking back a couple decades. Oakland did have 165 homicides uh, one year, about 30 years ago. So not unprecedented. I mean, there were worse times out there, but people are really uh, feeling concerned about what's going on. What is the lesson as you look back in history for how how we can look at today's problems? I mean, that was the driving question of this story. And, and the reason I wanted to do it was just what happened a decade ago and can the same thing work? And depending on who you ask, you get a different answer. Now, there are those in the city who are cautiously optimistic that ceasefire can still work and that the pandemic's effects, especially the early months of lockdown, are really what dulled ceasefire's impacts. So you have these uh, life coaches, mentors, violence interrupters, people who go to the scenes of homicides and try to keep things calm, try to talk to people at these scenes in, in a sensitive way. And a lot of that got disrupted during the early months of the pandemic. And, and so we saw the program's direct engagement numbers just drop in 2020. And they, while they rebounded slightly in 2021, they were still lower than before the pandemic. So they weren't able to keep ceasefire going in the same way? Not in the same way. And even the targeted enforcement efforts declined. So uh, arrests through the program uh, dropped from 2019 to 2020 to 2021. And again, these are these are supposed to be the, the focused arrests where you're specifically going after uh, the groups and individuals who aren't heeding the message to stop the violence. So ceasefire was impacted in a number of ways through the pandemic. And there are those who think that as we claw our way out of this and get to some semblance of normal, what worked a decade ago can work again today. But there are others who aren't so sure. And that includes ceasefire's founder, David Kennedy, who says, We are in an unprecedented moment, and we don't have enough information to know what is going on, 
what is driving violence to surge in cities across the United States and what ultimately can stop it. He thinks the same factors are at play, that it's conflict between a very small number of individuals from a very small number of groups, but that the circumstances around that have worsened. And so the open question is, what can be done about that? So we hope that the reconnection that comes with the end of the pandemic, if there is an end of the pandemic, is going to put us in a better place. That is the hope. And there are a lot of people on the ground here in Oakland who are operating and, and working on that hope. All right. Raheem Hosseini, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Damien. Thanks to my guest today on Fifth and Mission. He's Chronicle writer and editor Raheem Hosseini. He runs our race and equity team. Thanks to King Kaufman, who produced this episode. And thank you for listening. <laughs>